Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbi Brent Spodek and Professor Ziva Hassenfeld on Parshat Vayeshev. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbi Brent Spodek and Professor Ziva Hassenfeld. Brent, hello. So good to learn some Torah together. Ziva, I'm thrilled to learn together again. Uh, we're, I know we're diving into Parshat Vayeshev, but where in particular should we go? Absolutely. So I actually, I said to you right before we hit record, I wish that we had um, soundtracks to our podcast because I would play um, Salt and Pepper. Let's talk about sex, baby. But I won't sing for you uh, because I really want to talk about Yosef and Eshet Potiphar. This is Genesis 39. And the sort of uh, racy story of what happens with him and his boss's wife once he gets down to Egypt. So um, could you just remind us all where we are in the Joseph cycle, what's going on, and why he's in Potiphar's house? Sure. Well, um, let's see. So Joseph was famously uh, one of many, many brothers, and he was somewhat uh, arrogant, let's say in anticipating or dreaming that his whole family would bow down to him. His brothers got upset, threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery. He found his way into slavery in Egypt. While he was enslaved, uh, while he was uh, imprisoned in Egypt, he had a openness of heart to the wine bearer and the baker, had an expanded heart compared to what he had had relative to his brothers. And through that, he became known as somebody who could interpret dreams. When uh, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, had a dream that he needed interpreted, word got to him that this guy, Yosef, who he had in the prison, was good at interpreting dreams. He brought Yosef out. Yosef interpreted the dreams, seven lean years, seven fat years, having to make provisions. Good, good. We're going, too, we're going too far. And there's too just far. too much with, you know what? Yeah, let's save some for next week, right? Because we're, All right. we, that's a lot to process. And um, All right. But the first thing first is God is with Yosef, right? So clearly God was not with Yosef, or I don't know, that's a theological question that I'll sidestep. But the Torah tells us that God was with Yosef, and so uh, everything was successful. And so he rises, he gets sold as, you know, as a servant, um, but he rises in Potiphar's house to the point that Potiphar is like, wow, this guy has it, right? And... um, Actually, it's really interesting because Potiphar sees that God's with him. I'm going to read for us from, again, uh, we're in chapter 39, and I'm going to read verse 3, Pasuk Gimel. Vayar Adonav ki Adonai ito. And his master saw that God was with him. And everything that he did, God made sure was successful. So, of course, you know, that we should all be so lucky um, this leads to professional success for Yosef. And basically, um, he gets to the very, very top. And then we're told in this really um, interesting, intriguing phrase, I'm now skipping to verse six, but Yazov but Yosef. And so Putifar left everything that he possessed in the hands of Yosef, right? He didn't really exclude anything, I'm paraphrasing. Except for the bread that he ate. 
And when we're in the Yosef story, which we'll be in for a few Parshas, we really need to be attuned to, um, to poetic language, to allusions, to, um, to euphemisms, right? So what is that bread that wasn't left? Any thoughts? Well, um, given how the story unfolds, and even the very last line of Pasuk uh, uh, Vav, via Toah, right, that Joseph was, was good looking, via Feh Mar'en, was, I don't know, good looking. Easy on the eyes, we said. Easy on the eyes. Right. Um, right, makes me wonder, as it so often is in Jewish thought, if food is actually a euphemism for sex. I'm thinking that myself. So the question that I want to explore with you today is, and really, of course, it's never the question, because for me, it's always the literacy practice. It's the excitement of what's said around the question more than any particular answer. But uh, just to be uh, linear about this, let's start with the question. The question is this. What happens is we know that Yosef is in charge. We know that um, Potiphar, we don't know, but perhaps Potiphar is aware of how good looking he is, distractingly good looking, and he doesn't leave the bread. And we know, of course, that Potiphar's wife, who never gets named, is attracted to Yosef and wants to sleep with Yosef. So the question that we have to figure out today, Brent, is how is it, given that that's sort of the context, that they end up alone in the house, such that the scene could unfold where she tries to, um, she propositions him and he maybe resists, maybe doesn't, which ends up with her accusing him and him going to jail, right? So that's how the story, that's not, not to um, give the story away, but that's how it ends. And the question I wanna ask is, but how did he even get himself in this situation, right? Where were his boundaries? Where was his seichel to know like, okay, this woman is probably someone that I need to be careful around. And essentially the question is this, and this is not my question, this is our tradition's question, this is Chazal's question, this is Rashi's question. Did Yosef a little bit want to, a little bit want to be with Isha Potiphar? Um, maybe, I mean, it's hard to jump into the mind of the character in this way. And I feel like the question of desire there is a complicated one, right? Because of her role and his role, like, I, it's easy to imagine that he had some sort of desire, but it's hard for me to to pull out. Did he have desire for her in a in a in a physical sense, in a lustful sense, or did he have a desire for the sort of status, the sort of freedom that um, Potif, uh, that Potiphar had, and that he didn't, right? And it wasn't so much about her as a person. Uh, or her as a woman, but really more about his role in the society and wanting a different sort of role. Absolutely. And we don't um, need to unravel the uh, psychology of desire today together, but, uh, and we won't. Uh, I can't promise our audience that, but I want to actually take it textual, you know, with, with the exciting questions as our, our motivation. And so, as I said, we're in chapter 39. We know that he's attractive. We know that she's attracted to him. And we have an idea from the motif of bread that perhaps uh, Potiphar knows that his wife has attracted him. And we get to verse Yud Aleph. We get to verse 11. And we're told, It was on one such day. We're going to come back to that word. And he came to the house to do his work. 
And no one was in the house, right? And this is the verse that it all turns on. How did he get himself in this situation? And I actually want to bring our tradition because this is discussed by uh, in, in Masechet Sota on Daf 36b. And we're told that there are two readings. And actually Rashi brings both readings. Rav understands the phrase malachto to do his work, literally, right? What? Okay, there was a holiday. So he came to the house and he, you know, everyone has their, ta- their to-do list for the day. He came to do it. What's the problem? Where Shmuel says, no, 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 no. The Yosef story is a story full of euphemisms. And you are absolutely mistaken to take it literally. To do his work, malach to, is a euphemism. It's not talking about his actual uh, to-do list with his tasks as uh, the head of the household. It's a euphemism that he, uh, he knew that Potiphar's wife was alone. And he was, uh, he was intrigued and he was pulled to, to have relations with her. Are you drawn to either of those? I'm, I'm open to the possibility of that he had some desire. But uh, even if so, I don't want to uh, condemn him in any way for, for whatever desire he might have, you know, because we're not, uh, uh, we're not Jimmy Carter, right? It's totally acceptable, I think, actually, I would just say it's acceptable to have certain desire. The question is, what isn't what your heart does? The question is, what is your, what does your body do? And so the fact that right in the following verse, right, she caught hold of him by his garment and said, lie with me, right? But he fled. The Yazov, which I think is exactly the same word um, as used earlier for what um, uh, Potiphar did, was Yazov all of his items in his hand except for the food. And now he's he's Yaazov Bigdo, right? He's abandoning his clothing, right? Or he's abandoning his garment and fleeing, right? And even the idea that abandoning the garment itself might be a euphemism, like we we abandoned our clothing and got onto something uh, more salacious. Uh, right? And he fled outside. So the fact that even if he had some desire, he clearly didn't come close to acting on it. Once that desire was close to being actualized, he fled. So if he had some desire, that doesn't trouble me. Beautiful. Yeah. And of course, Brett, this is a judgment-free zone. I mean, you know, we are hevritas in life. We can't, we can't be, uh, we can't be restrained by judgment. But I think that as far as the textual question, you get us exactly there, right? So for, for, for Shmuel, who says it's a euphemism, the challenge is, oh yeah, if he went into the house with the intention of, of having an affair and the intention of having relations with uh, Ishit Potiphar, then why doesn't he, right? And what's interesting and what I love is that then the Midrash in Sota says, because an image of his father flashed before his eyes. And, right, and Rashi brings uh, that as well, yeah. Yeah, that's how we sort of resolve, right? If we, and again, should we be trying to figure out someone's intention? Should we not? Do we, are we ever able to figure out our intentions? I'm not sure, but I do love that they, they build this conversation out of, out of a ambiguity, which they really build into the text because the text isn't obviously ambiguous, right? And so they say, look, um, let's hold both. Let's hold both um, 
possibilities. Let's hold that he was totally innocent. Again, I know that we don't love those type of language because there's latent judgment there. There's a judgment-free zone. Exactly. Or let's also hold the read that like, he, yeah, he was kind of uh, attracted to her and he kind of knew and he kind of was open to it. And um, can I build it one more step? Please, please. Okay, because I just love this. I just love this. I love the way, and I know that I'm, you know, a hammer who always sees a nail when we're learning, but it's special to me because I love how these mutually exclusive interpretations get to coexist side by side on every page of Tanakh. Because then when we go to the Mufarshim, they're like, you know what, let's let's keep this question up. And, um, and there's this interesting question, you know, okay, Malach To, right? In verse 11, I'm focused on verse 11, 39, 11. What was his work a euphemism or was it literal? And then he's Cooney and later uh, Rav, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch brings up the question like, well, let's also interrogate the first phrase in that verse, one such day, right? Well, is that, um, is that indicating to us support for the idea that he's just doing his work routine? It was just one day like every other day? Or is it kind of cluing us in? Yeah, when I say one such day, I mean not one such day, right? That actually, like, hey, reader, hey, Jew, hey, Torah, studier i'm giving you a clue that this is going to be a different kind of death and i just um I, i'm not here to decide which one it is i i have my thoughts but um but who knows who knows what's in anyone else's heart and i certainly don't know what was in yosef's heart but i i am here to sort of amplify and appreciate that we as a learning community and a literacy practice we carry both of those we carry them from the Gemara to Mafarshim to uh, relatively modern commentators. And we keep that question alive because um, in my mind, it's the question that we all wanna know. Absolutely. Although I think as, I, I think you're right in the sense that uh, through, the, through the living text, this question is kept alive. I think as I often am, I'm drawn to the interior question, the, the relational question, right? We, how do we live with all of the conflicting feelings in our heart, right? Any of us who are in any sort of relationships have complicated feelings about those relationships, right? I don't think it's possible to have a partner and not occasionally want to shoot them. It's, I don't think it's possible to have children and not occasionally want to be free of them. Right. So the complexities of the feelings that emerge is one thing. What we do with those feelings is something else. And so I want to just, in some ways, just take the more provocative suggestion that uh, Joseph did have some feelings for Aisha Potiphar in some way, maybe because of her position, maybe for her personally, all sorts of reasons why a young man might be interested in this woman. What's striking to me is that um, is both what he, he, um, he, what he does and what he doesn't do, right? She tells this whole story and makes up this story about what happened, right? But he doesn't do that, right? Um, he he doesn't, uh, things he doesn't do, he doesn't attack her, right? He doesn't yell at her. He doesn't externalize his own feelings onto her, right? Um, 
the, which is a su super common thing to do. If we're in a relationship and I have some sort of hard feelings, right? Or some sort of feelings that I don't know how to process or how to, to, to make sense of, I can externalize them onto you and say, it's all your fault. Here, there's a reasonable basis to make that argument. And he actually doesn't do that. Now that might be positional. He's a servant. There's no benefit to him doing that. But the silence there is notable. He also doesn't give in to the temptation. So the fact that he operates the way he does, that even if he has some temptation, he manages it in such a way that he steps away from the scene, that to me feels instructive about um, what we do with our own hard feelings, whether they're desire that's inappropriate, anger that's inappropriate, frustration that's inappropriate. What do we do with them? When do we, when do we externalize it onto the other person? When do we give in to those desires, right? And just yell at the kid or, you know, have the affair or whatever it might be. And when do we have the, the insight that Joseph seems to have here be like, I need to get out of this situation. I can't operate responsibly here. I need to step away. I love it. I love the question. Um, I love, I love you reminding us that, um, that it's not just about what was in his heart, but it's actually about how he, he, the actual actions he did. And, um, and you're right. You're right to, to shine a light on the fact that he really, he was able to extricate himself without hurting, or at least not, you know, getting aggressive towards, towards Isha Potifar. Um, I, I think that, you know, my Kavana, my bracha for us, as we learn this Parsha is exactly what you said. Um, when we're able to not be afraid of our feelings, when we're able to see in our tradition that feelings are there, feelings are allowed, complicated feelings are part of life. It's not anathema to religious life. It's at the heart of religious life. Then, um, then we're able to do the right action. But I think that you can't do the right action without allowing yourself to live in the discomfort of complicated feelings. A hundred percent. I feel like, you know, on a, on a more personal level, uh, the greatest gift that my spiritual practices, and here I mean specifically davening and meditation, um, have given me is the ability to notice the gap or just that there is a gap between the feelings that arise in me and me right? I am not my feelings. I'm not my desires. Those are things that I engage with or not. And the ability to notice, and it's one thing to do it in a davening setting, in a meditation setting when you're focused on that, but there's a reason we call that spiritual practice because the real life is, okay, in that moment with my kid, with my partner, with my colleague, when I have that overwhelming feeling to do something, can I, can I just have that little bit of spaciousness in between that desire and the actual action and just say like, I, I, I don't want to engage with that desire. I don't want to, I don't want to yell. I don't want to touch. I don't want to, I don't want to eat that cookie. I can just notice the desire. And like you said, sit with the discomfort of that desire, not being actualized, right? That for me is the essence and the fundamental benefit of spiritual practice, that gap, that space. Absolutely. Brent, thank you so much for learning with me, for learning with this Parsha, for beginning to touch on these really um, complicated and personally, to me, hard topics and questions. Um, I'm so grateful to you and I'm so grateful to Pardes and to, of course, our uh, Torah. 
that it allows us to talk about these things. Amen, amen. I couldn't agree more. Shabbat shalom. All right, Ziva, wonderful <laughs> to see you as always. Shabbat shalom and more soon. Absolutely. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of the Pardes Parsha podcast.